kind of an opening statement before I get to the sermon is that <clears throat> I am really ready for COVID to be over. And I am, I am really, really ready. And uh, I, I had an email this week or from a, a dear person in our church who was, who was very sick, not doing well. And he said, I, he said I, I'm not doing well. Um, the prognosis is not good. But once I am vaccinated, I'm going to run to church. He says, I miss being with God's people. I, I miss seeing the people of God. I miss life in-person worship. I miss Bible study with people. And I, I feel the same way. I, I really, I, I'm really, I mean, some of you come from a heritage where you don't touch much. I mean, that's just kind of some of, kind of maybe a German Dutch heritage where there's not a lot of touching going on. I predict that after COVID, I think most of us are going to be like Italians. There's going to be a lot of touching. I'm ready to hug and touch. And, and I, I was reading Mark this week and in the gospel, where, where one of my favorite passages is Mark chapter 5, a woman with a, a, a blood flow of 12 years. Uh, she spent all of her money trying to get better, and she only grew worse. And she heard about this man, Jesus, and she thought, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I can be made whole. And she pushed to the crowds. Now, she was an untouchable. If you have a, a blood flow in the Old Testament, you're outside the camp. You can't be touched. You're like a leper. And so she's, she has no viability as far as being touched. And she touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And I just thought there, there's, there's healing in the presence of Jesus. Wherever you are today, you know, in your struggles and your joys and your sorrows, there's healing in his presence. We need to get in the presence of Jesus. But also just brought home the fact that, that there is power in touch. And then the very next chapter, the last verse is Mark chapter 6. It says this, that, and, and wherever Jesus came in villages or cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the, they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And I thought there's power in touch. There's power in community. So I'm, thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for your kindness and your support, but and may the Lord hasten the day that this is in the rearview mirror. So I'm in the book of 2 Timothy. I'm going to be part two today. I'm, and 2 Timothy we're looking at the theme of developing sea legs in a chaotic, topsy-turvy world. In other words, how, how to be in on a body of water where the ship is listing and there may be white caps and you're able to keep your equilibrium in this day of chaos. And, and so I believe, personal opinion, I think we live in a more disruptive age than possibly any time in the history of our country as far as what's going on. And I gave you this formula from a little book I read a few books, weeks ago that says information overload, which is definitely where we live. I mean, no one here is going to argue that we are inundated with information overload. So the information overload plus rapid social change equals chaos or confusion. And that's where we live. We live in this information age, rapid change place, and it leads to chaos. And so Paul is writing this book to his last book to a young man who we think is very timid, very reticent, named Timothy. And yet he's asking Timothy to do some very difficult things. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I write you, Timothy, this letter. I want you to stay in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city 
crossroads, cosmopolitan, educational, economic powerhouse city. He says, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus so that you may charge or command certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. In other words, Timothy, you're young, you're timid, but I want you to, to command people in the church. Don't give, don't give way to these speculative nothingness, but you major on the doctrine of the gospel. You charge them. It's a strong word. And then he writes 2 Timothy, and he ends the 2 Timothy with chapter 4, and he says, Timothy, I, I, I charge you. Once again, I command you. In, in, the, in the name or in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, preach the word. <laughs> Be ready in season and out of season, for a time is going to come when they won't endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled. So, so you preach the word. You, you reprove, you rebuke, and you exhort with great patience and careful instruction. He says, you, Timothy, you stay by the stuff, man. And then he says this, as for you, be sober-minded, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So in the midst of this very difficult exhortation to stay strong, Paul says, I'll remind you, verse 7, chapter 1, I'll remind you, you have not received a spirit of timidity or drawing back. You have received the spirit of power to do that which is very difficult in the name of Jesus, of love to care for difficult people, and of discipline or sound judgment to think well. So it says, Timothy, stay by the step. You have been given resources. So you always travel with hope. So I'm going to, this is kind of part two from last week, how to travel with hope, how to live hopefully. And I'm going to give you just four points. You travel hopefully as you understand the greatness and mercy of Christ and his power in your life. You travel hopefully as you are daily renewed by the scripture. You travel hopefully or live with hope as you understand his lordship and you live with cheerfulness and you travel hopefully as you live with expectation because God is alive and he's at work. So I want to come away from this understanding that we are to travel with a sense of hope that we have resources. So in Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament, the last chapter of that book, the writer gives these staccato commands. He says this, in part, he says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality. For some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them and have been mistreated because they're in the body. And then get down to chapter 13, verse 5. He says, he says, understand this. The Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, you live this way as you realize that God walks among you and God empowers you. God is an ever-present reality and strength by the power of the Spirit, and he gives you resources to live the Christian life. So, so because of these things, we always travel with hope. Now listen to this. We can so be so consumed by the future and what might ha happen that we mortgage our present-day joy. 
And I think the Bible says throughout, you live today, you trust the Lord today, and you leave the tomorrows in his hands. You know, and you can still plan. You prepare, but you live today. You don't mortgage today by being fretful and concerned about, about the future. And, and so we, we come to, to this issue of, of, of what, what we do. You know, in this difficult time, people have said, you know, what do we do? You know, how, how do we live? And I thought about a little paradigm given by a guy named Richard Niebuhr in 1951. He wrote a book entitled Christ and Culture. And this is what Niebuhr said. He said there are five options that people propose. I'm just going to mention three of them when it comes to living out the Christian faith. There's, there's Christ against culture. And he said you, you draw back, you put a perimeter around your house, you don't interact with your neighbors, you just pull back and you do what I would call the Amish thing to a degree. I don't think that's a biblical, I don't think that's a biblical option. The other is Christ and culture. And he says, by that, uh, he said, I mean that, that, that the culture dictates to the church what the church should be doing. This is 51, 1951. In, in other words, the church is kind of swallowed up in the culture and just becomes part of the broader culture. I don't believe that's an option. I, I've heard several people say in the recent last few years, this is the new normal. That's an oxymoron. You know, if it's normal, it's not new. For, for us who stand under the banner of Jesus, this is the normal. This is God's word. So we're, we're not going to be swallowed up by the culture. But the third option, I think, is the biblical option. Christ transforming culture through his church. His people are energized to go into the arts, to go into sports, to go into medicine and law and to education, to Whatever. And as they do that and they represent Christ with salt and light, they impact people and they transform the culture by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the only biblical option. Jesus said, as my Father has sent me, so send I you in John chapter 20. So, so we, we, we don't pull back, we go forward. So four points. Number one, if I'm to go forward, I've got to be someone as I travel with hope, that understands the goodness and the mercy and the kindness that's found in the living God and the power that's found in the living God. So I go to chapter 1 of the book we're looking at, 2 Timothy 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life. See, the promise of life that's found in Christ Jesus. And they say, well, what is this promise of life? Is it? Is it? Is it eternal life or is it life now? And I say the answer, yes. The promise of life is that there is a qualitative joy, embrace, confidence, hope now because of our union with Christ and the forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and the hope of heaven. And there is an eternity that is to come. The same concept is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to chapter 4, verse 8. For bodily training is of some value. Okay? Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So you see that? Godliness, knowing Christ, walking in his way, holds promise for the present life and the life that is to come. So I, I need to understand that he is the God who 
overflows with goodness and truth and mercy and his triune glory. And as I concentrate on that, I live hopefully. So I was thinking how to make an application. So next Sunday is Valentine's Day. Okay. So let me give it a two-minute marriage exhortation just on the side. So next Sunday is Valentine's Day. And I think I love, I love Christian weddings. I love when young, a young man and young woman or man and woman come forward and they're, they pledge a commitment to each other under the Lordship of Christ. It's just a wonderful, wonderful reality. But I, I thought about, I, I've thought about Psalm 1 this week that talks about the fact that people who know the Lord and who live, thinking about the scripture, are rooted. They're rooted. And then it says, not so people without the Lord. They're like the chaff that the wind blows here and the wind blows there. And I, I thought in, in Christian marriage, there's, there, 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 Usually we have a unity candle or recently people started to take two different colors of sand and pour in the sand together to represent oneness. But really I thought at a wedding, I'm not suggesting this, but they would have a, a kind of a big brass container and in it is a replica of, of, of a boat, a ship, and there's been some combustible liquid poured on it. And so after they're pronounced husband and wife, the, the wife and the husband would light a match and drop it on the boat, and the boat would burst into flames and burn up. And, and because in 1519, there's a guy named Cortez that came to Mexico to conquer Mexico with 600 men, and the odds were against them, and he knew it. So when they got on shore, the boats were flame. Cortez burned the boats. And what he was saying, there's no going back. So you know when you get married in the Lord, brothers and sisters, what you're saying, there's no going back. This is it. There's, 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 there's no plan B. This is it. It can only be broken by immorality or desertion where the, the one spouse says, I'm out of here. I renounce my, basically, I renounce my faith. That's another study. But not, not only a covenant commitment, but in marriage, I'm always very hopeful and filled with expectation when a couple gets married because when a couple get married under the lordship of Christ, they live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is changing people right now. Right now, the Holy Spirit is changing us. He's pushing us and prodding us and pushing us deeper into the light. In fact, Hebrews 13 talks about the fact that the marriage bed should be guarded and undefiled. And then again, the promise is because the Lord said, I will never leave you. And the Lord says, I am your helper. I will energize you. So, so I'm, I just thought marriage has, has great great hope if you're in the Lord. It gives you a place to stand as you contemplate the mercy and the goodness of the Lord. There's a man named Hudson Taylor who died in 1902. He was a founder of China Inland Mission, wonderfully used of the Lord. And as an older man, he preached one day and somebody came up to him after he lived a lifetime of service in China and seen literally hundreds of people go to China to take the gospel out. And the person said, oh, brother Taylor, I wish I had great faith in God like you do. And he said, I appreciate that, but really I think the issue is not my great faith, it's really faith in a great God. See, it's not my great faith, it's faith in a great God. So I would just say, do you see the great God who's working in your life, who's energizing you, who's, who's changing, who's, who's blessing, who gives you a place to stand and gives you rootedness, secondly. 
If we're going to travel hopefully or live hopefully, we must continue to be renewed as our minds are governed and changed by the Bible. This is God's word. In fact, there's a promise in, in, in the second Timothy 3 that says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. And it lists four different areas. And then it says this, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, able to do every good work. And you go back and say, well, a lot of the decisions you make cannot be found with a verse in the Bible. So what does that mean? Here's what it means, I think, that as, as the scripture and the reality of Jesus get into the very depth of your being and produces love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and kindness and meekness and self-control and, 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 and does it, as, as it does that, um, you're prepared to make good decisions. You're prepared to handle difficult people. You're prepared to handle situations that would bowl other people over because you have the reality of Christ and he's worked in your heart. I need to be someone who's in the scripture, who's, who's thinking it, who's, who's really kind of ruminating. And, and If I'm going to travel, hopefully I've got to live here because the world system doesn't really give you much hope. I was uh, doing some research recently and I went to an article in Oprah magazine. I think Oprah Winfrey is a wonderful kind woman. And she has this magazine called Oprah. I, I don't read it. I just was reading this article. Don't, don't uh, take away my man card, but I don't read Oprah magazine. But a year, a month ago, there was an article on the 35 affirmations that you should add to your daily rotation. It was just 35 statements. An affirmation is a statement that you review that will give, for lack of a better word, gives, you know, a foundation to your life. So I went through these 35 affirmations, and I, I'm going to choose, I chose four or five, and let me just, I'm not belittling this, I'm just saying that, that once you get below some of these statements, there's just no place to really, to really stand. I mean, just, so I'll just read them out and without much comment, but um, so here, here's one. Um, no, that's not it. That's a good affirmation, by the way. Okay. This is J.K. Rowling. She said this at Harvard commencement address three years ago. She wrote the Harry Potter books. Incredibly gifted writer. She said, we do not need magic to transform our world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. And I'm going, uh, no, not, not really. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branch. If you abide in me, you bear much fruit. So I, I go that once you get below the surface, you go, I, there, there's not a staying power there. Um, this is at the Women Mary commencement address two years ago. Glenn Close, the actress, said, Your perspective is unique, it's important, and it counts. Close quote. And I thought, well, that's okay. I mean, that's, that's, that, that, that's okay, but really, is my perspective unique? Let me down. I haven't had an original thought in my life. I've got to be honest with you. Hey, everything I, I quote is from the from Bible, somebody else. I mean, if I have an original thought, it really scares me. Right? Oh, that's just me. Maybe you live on the cutting edge of originality every day. This is one of my favorites. This, this guy was a delightful, quotable guy, Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Um, and I read that and I thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to be married to someone that gets up every day and that's the first thing they say when they get out of bed. I'm the greatest. 
I, I, don't, I don't want to really be the father of a child that says, I'm the greatest. Some of you are saying, well, that's really where I live right now, but that's beside the point. I mean, you, you, um, Jesus says that if you find your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose yourself for my sake, you'll really find it. But this was, I thought this was very interesting. I won't spend much time on this. I don't want to do that one. Let's go to this one. No, that's not it. Anyway, uh, I can't get away from that. I'll just tell you the one. This, this one, I thought, this is Eckhart Tolle. He's a mystic. He's still alive. He's 72. And he says, the, the ultimate truth of who we are is not I am that is. I am this or I am that, but I am. And I thought, Eckhart Tolle was the guy who used to be Ulrich Tolle, but he changed his name. And he was 29. He was contemplating suicide. And then he said he had a blissful moment where he realized that he was not really part of anything. He just existed. I don't know what that means. I've tried to read some of his stuff, and I, don't, I can't understand it. And, and so he said after he had this revelation, he lived for two years in London. And he sat on a park bench every day for two years experiencing total bliss because he realized he wasn't an individual, he was just part of a great system. And I thought, I wonder who paid for the food during his two years of total bliss in England. But that's, that's beside the point. But I, I look at this stuff, and especially some of this, once you get below the surface, there's not much there. Let me give you four affirmations from the, the passage we're studying. So first of all is this, I am, I am saved because of the eternal love of the living God, not because of my performance. Verse 9. I, I'm saved because God has had mercy upon me, not because of my performance. My performance doesn't affect his love for me. It doesn't affect the mercy of Jesus. It doesn't affect the embrace of the Father. It, 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 I, I am loved. You get up in the morning and you say that, it's a good way. Or the, the next affirmation is from verse 12. that basically says that they, this God who loves me will Guard me until the end. He will carry me across the finish line. He will energize me so I can get across the finish line. He who began a good work in me and me will bring it to completion. It's a glorious thought. Or verse 13, there's a standard of sound words that is life-giving and life-affirming and leads to human flourishing, and it's called the Scripture. And I rejoice in that. Or, or chapter 2, verse 1. It says, be strong in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. That every day I receive ongoing mercy and grace as I understand and glory in the greatness of Christ. And let me tell you something. Those things give you weight and confidence and hope. And that's why I need to be in the Scripture. I need to think the Scripture. I need to breathe the Scripture. I need to be a person that is thinking about it. I, 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 that's just who I need to be. This week, I've been thinking about Psalm 4. Where they say, the psalmist says, they say to me, who will show us any good? And the psalmist says, oh Lord, may the light of your face shine upon us. And then he says this, you have filled my heart with more joy than they have when their wine or grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, oh Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So, so, so I've just been going on, so, Lord, you make me dwell in safety. I can lay down and sleep and rest because you watch over me. Thank you, Lord. See, those things get in your brain. So we need to think these thoughts. The third is this. As we think these thoughts and understand the character of God, there is what I call, this is, 
a, a growing cheerfulness as we look to the Lord. Uh, and by that I mean you just trust him. My time is in his hands. A quote from the Heidelberg Catechism question 27, that this hope fills us with, with great joy. So one of my favorite people in life is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards died in 1758. He was 54. He had just become president of Princeton College. Jonathan Edwards left his ministry and traveled to Princeton. His wife was cleaning, packing up the house. And he's living with his daughter, whose husband has just died two months before that. And Edwards lives with Esther, and he takes the smallpox vaccine. He develops smallpox, and he dies. March the 22nd. His wife writes a letter dated April the 4th. She's just found out that her husband is dead. And she writes this letter to Esther, who is taking care of her dad. It's, it's just one paragraph. It's one of my favorite letters. She says, my dear daughter, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Stop. She says, this is a dark cloud. This is heavy, heavy grief. And then she says, oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. What a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are still given to God, and there I am and love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. The letter was never read by her daughter because her daughter died the next week. Four months later, three days before her husband's birthday, Sarah Edwards dies at age 48, leaving 11 children behind. No, no safety net, no social security, no insurance. But she says, I trust the Lord. And I, th I think if I, can, if I can get into my mind that there is a great God who watches over me, who even takes the hard, difficult, black cloud days and months and maybe years of my life and uses them to shape my character. Man, it, 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 it gives me hope. I was reading this week about a, or about a, a, a Korean, North Korean man. His last name was Lee. And he, so he, he leaves, he's starving to death in North Korea and he hazards his life to cross into China. If he's caught, there's Lifelong death, lifelong imprisonment or death. So he goes to China. He, he crosses the river. Uh, he, he basically is ministered to by believers uh, who are helping refugees from North Korea. Uh, they teach him to read. They teach him the gospel. He becomes a believer for three years. He reads the Bible. And then uh, he, he's, the Chinese have a crackdown. They apprehend him. They send him back to Korea. He's arrested in Korea. He's with a wife. He's married. She's seven months pregnant. As he get to Korea, they're, they're divided. She's seven months pregnant. He never sees her again. And he finds out later that the, the, the Chinese authorities aborted the baby, his, his little baby. So he's there. And then kind of miraculously, he's released. But he, he hazards his life again. He goes to China. He's in China. And he's ministering to people. And the Chinese government cracks down. 
And they, they send him to a camp, and in the camp he is, uh, has a judge and a jury before a police board, and the, the, the board can said, sentence him to, to, to 10 years in prison for coming into China illegally. And there's one man on the board, he says, he says I, I believe what you're doing is a righteous deed, and I think you're innocent, but I'm only one vote of many. If I were in charge, I would release you. Which I thought, you read that, it takes incredible bravery to say that in China today. So he's in prison, he's in an overcrowded prison, he's, he's doing, he says, I'm in deep depression for like three years. And then he says something happened. He said, I started remembering the scripture I'd learned. And he said, I came to this realization. He says, after, he says, I, I, I believe that it was God who started this work and that he would take me somewhere. Now that, that's not a profound theological statement, but I think it's a statement. He said, I, I believe that it was God who started this work and he'd take me somewhere. He'd watch over me. And from that point forward, it changed. He became known as a North Korean camp pastor. He ministered to people. He would share the gospel. People would send literature from different places. He'd give out literature. It's just an amazing story. So eight years into a 10-year uh, sentence, he's hauled before the authorities again. He's given a change of clothes. He's put in the car, and they says, we're taking you back to North Korea. And he says, I, I knew I faced imprisonment for life. And they went to the border, and the border was shut. There was no one in the border station because that day, Kim Jong-il had died. He was the great dictator whose son is now the dictator. And, and when he died, they closed down the whole country, and they went to a, pr a pr prolonged mourning because the great leader had died. And so they said, we don't know what to do with you, so we'll take you to the local prison. They go to the local prison, and the prison guard in charge, the man in charge, is the guy who eight years earlier said, if I was in charge, I would free you, and he freed him. And he goes to South Korea, and he's now a pastor in South Korea. And that has a happy ending to the story. Jonathan Edwards did not. But I want to say that the change in his life came when he said in his mind, he says, I really believe that it was God who started his work and that he would take me somewhere, that, that God is in control. And that's what I'm trying to say. When I understand that God is God and he's in control, it gives me hope. Point four. I believe when we understand that, we live expectantly. So you go back at the Hebrews 13. If God is our help and he's working in us, we can live expectantly. So let me give you this. So at the turn of this year, I read editorials in various magazines that said this is the most difficult year in America since 1968 uh, because of COVID, because of the uh, during an election that was filled with animosities because of so forth and so on. The race riots, the issues. So, so I, let, me, let me talk to you about 68 and the aftermath of 68. I was alive in 1968. I was an eighth grader. And I remember, I remember these things very well. Some things just etched in your mind. I remember going to school after this happened on, on March the 31st, Lyndon Johnson, the president, gave an address. Now, we're sitting at home on Sunday night watching Bonanza. Remember that? And so we're watching Bonanza, and they have, they break in and say, we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Now, first of all, I think that's why we were more healthy then. I think a 24-7 news cycle is one way to get depressed and stay depressed all the time. So we just had the news once, once a night, 
and then special news, special news bulletin and address from the Oval Office. And Lyndon Johnson gave this address, and then he ended his address, and no one else but his wife knew who was going to say this. He says, based upon what I've just said, I have chosen not to seek re-election in the general election. And nobody knew that was going to happen. And, and so people were just stunned. Four days later, sitting home, 8 o'clock at night, we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. We have a report from Memphis, Tennessee, that Dr. Martin Luther King has been assassinated. And we were, I remember everybody was stunned. We went to school the next day. We were stunned. Why has this happened? What's going on? And, and in the aftermath of that, there was a rumor spread that it was done by the U.S. government. Obviously, it was not. It was done by a demented man named James Earl Ray. But anyway, it was, there were race riots all over America. In Washington, D.C., 13 people died. In Cleveland, 69 businesses were burned to the ground. In Pittsburgh, there were 500 fires all over the U.S. I remember going through the streets of Winston-Salem. I lived 30 miles outside, and on the overpass were National Guardsmen holding rifles. That's 1968. 1968, Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive. Vietnam War was very divisive. Tet Offensive was the high point of the war as far as power. 1968, June, Robert F. Kennedy, the front runner for the Democrat National Convention, was shot and killed in a California hotel after he'd won the Democrat primary in California. 1968, Democrat National Convention in Chicago was wild. There were mass riots, or lots of riots. There were 5,000 National Guardsmen, 7,500 U.S. soldiers and uh, 12,000 policemen to try to control the situation. And there were riots at night. And the, I remember the young people in the riots, most of them young people, saying the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. Inside the convention center, I was watching this in eighth grade. I, don't, I guess I was a nerd. I don't know. But I, was, I was watching it. And inside the convention center, there's a man named Senator Abraham Ribikoff, whose parents were Jews from Poland. His parents came to America with nothing but literally the shirts on their back, but they instilled a, a desire for education among their children. Abraham Ribikoff became then and now still the only Jewish governor of Connecticut and was a Connecticut U.S. senator. And he was given a speech at the Democrat National Convention nominating a guy named George McGovern, who had become the front runner in four years, but he said this, if you, he went off, off speech, because he had a speech, he went off speech, he said, if you nominate George McGovern, you will no longer have to put up with the Gestapo tactics of the Chicago Police Department. Now, he, he was a Jew saying Gestapo tactics, which really gave a lot of weight. There was an uproar. Some people plotted the Chicago delegation down here said things that cannot ever be repeated. It was mayhem. 1968, Summer Olympics. On the gold medal and silver and bronze medal stand, African-American athletes gave the black power salute. That deeply divided America. 1968. 1968 was just one year before something called Woodstock. 400,000 young people at a rock music concert. It was only one year before something called the Stonewall Riots in New York where the LBGTQ movement was birthed and gay rights received great press. All this happened in 1968. It was a very, very different.
difficult year. But let me tell you what happened. In the aftermath of this confusion and meltdown and uproar, there was something birthed called the Jesus Movement. The Jesus Movement was, it had its good strength, good, good and its bad side, but the Jesus Movement was about rediscovering who Jesus really is. And so what happened is on our campuses, the campus ministries in the late 60s and early 70s in this country absolutely skyrocketed. Campus Crusade for Christ. Navigators, InterVarsity. I mean, just Fellowship of Christian Athletes, incredible growth. As young people considered the melee of their day and the chaos of their day and considered the gospel of Jesus. 1972, there was something in Dallas, Texas called Explo 72, where over five nights, 200,000 young people, basically college age, but some high school, gathered together and they heard about how to share the gospel. They heard about evangelism. They heard about missions. Billy Graham preached five times, and that Expo 72 was a 13-year-old girl who heard the gospel, and she's my wife. I married her seven years later. My son was saying I married her the next year, but it was seven years later. Don't listen to Zach. So, I mean, so, so I am the product of the explosion of gospel ministries at the Citadel under the Navigators. There are many people who will be worshiping here today or part of this church who were one to Christ, had their hearts drawn to the gospel by campus ministries. So what I'm saying is if you study the history of revivals, and it's a glorious thing to study, usually before there's a major movement of God, there's a time of incredible darkness. So I, I look at our day and age, and I say, yeah, this is, these are difficult days, and, and these are hard times, and, and we have the new normal, we have the up is down, and down is up, and in and out is out of time. And there, there's, it's absolutely crazy. But we also serve a God who lives and who reigns and who works and who says, my kingdom is forever, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against my people, and, 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 and I have hope. So when I pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I'm always filled with hope. Not because I look at us, but because I look at him. So blessed be the things. So live, live hopefully. Live prayerfully. Live expectantly. As this word renews you and gets in your brain, renew, live hopefully. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day, and we thank you that uh, we have this scripture, a letter written to a, a young man who had been tasked with an onerous, difficult task of staying by the stuff and commanding people in Ephesus not to go off the rails and who was told to preach the word in season and out of season, knowing that some people would not listen and would mock him and, and, and just saying, stand by. I just pray that we would be people of incredible hopefulness as we look to you. I pray, Lord, that we would understand continually the goodness of the Lord, that we would be people who are renewed by the scripture, that we would have a growing cheerfulness as we contemplate your mercy in our lives, and that we would live with expectation. So I praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.